Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Well, once again, Joel has done a phenomenal job with choosing the songs that we sing at the beginning of our worship gathering. Uh, they go very well with the themes of the message that I'm about to preach, so I'm thankful for him and the, and the work that he's done. Hopefully, um, as you are listening to this sermon, you'll be able to kind of think back to those songs and say, hey, that's where that's actually coming from, hoping that some of that happens. Um, but we want to welcome you again to, to Sacred City Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex. I'm one of the, the elders here at Sacred City. And if you're just joining us today, we are coming to the end, um, not fully ending today, but we're coming close to that end of our summer sermon series called Summer in the Psalms. For those of you that have been part of it, hopefully it's been really good for you. Um, I'm thankful for the men that have preached, especially Rob, and the work that he's done over the summer. I know it's been really good for me. It's, it's led me to spend time in the Psalms in my daily Bible, personal, personal Bible reading time. And throughout this series, I have been challenged by the preaching of God's word, convicted, encouraged, and even comforted. And my hope, my prayer, is that some or all of that would happen for many of us today. Today we get to look at a psalm that is very interesting to say the least. Maybe you picked up on that as it was read. But it's also very beautiful if we can understand it correctly. But most of all, I think this psalm is a psalm that should remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. That's my hope, to be used by God this morning to remind us of Christian hope. I think that's its purpose. It's classified as a royal psalm, similar to Psalm 2, which we've already heard from in this series. Psalm 10 could actually be seen as the counterpart to Psalm 2, completing the picture that we've seen there. Now, it's not very clear how this psalm was used in the corporate or individual worship of the Israelites. Some think that it was sung at the king's coronation. Whenever a king would be crowned, they would sing this psalm. Others think, which I like this and hope this is how it was sung, that it was sung by the Israelites before their army would go out into battle. It may also have been sung at any time that God's people were losing hope, such as the time when they were overcome by the Babylonians and taken into exile. We, of course, as Christians being on the other side of the cross, can see it differently than God's people did originally and even throughout Israel's history, but I think ultimately its purpose remains the same. Again, it's a powerful reminder of the hope we can have in Jesus. Now, I think we need to say a little bit about that word hope. I think when most people think about hope, they think hoping for something, which would include waiting, longing for, desiring something, expecting something to come in the future. When I say this psalm gives us hope in Jesus, all of that is in it, especially, I think, if we think back how the Israelites looked at it. But I also mean trust. Hope and trust have an intimate relationship in the Bible. Jeremiah 14, 22, in the last line of it says, we set our hope on you, for you do all these things, speaking of Yahweh, their covenantal God. Jeremiah was declaring hope or trust in that God. A few chapters later, in, in chapter 17, verse 14, we see him write, O Lord, the hope of Israel, meaning Yahweh was the God that his people could trust in. The other important thing, I think, to see with this, and this one will probably be difficult for us since all of us have been so influenced by individualism in our culture, but their hope or trust was for their people. It was for their nation, for their covenant community. It wasn't necessarily a hope for the individual. I think we can 
be blinded by the indivi how individualism has actually affected us in our culture. It even impacts the way we read scripture. Doug Wilson says that instead of seeing the scriptures as a collection of the covenant documents for the church, most Christians see the scriptures as a collection of inspirational quotes for their personal victorious living. I think that's how many of us see it. But that's not how the Israelites seen it. Could they trust their God for their people's hope, for their people's future? Trust him for what? Their protection, their welfare, their flourishing, their happiness, as we learned Psalm 1 teaches us. Ultimately, a hope and trust in the God who made covenant promises to these people. Their happiness was so very much wrapped up in God's faithfulness and his faithful will being done. So that's somewhat of a challenge for us today. When we think about hope, can we think through the lens of God's people as a whole, even for generations to come, rather than just ourselves? Can we cry out like Jeremiah, O oh Lord, the hope of the world, instead of just our hearts? If we can, I think that we'll be blessed today. Now, I'm not saying that trusting in the Lord is easy. There's so much that we're exposed to on a daily basis in our culture that just beats hope for God's people and for his kingdom out of us. Read a newspaper. Anybody do that anymore? Open up your social media apps. Listen to your favorite news station. Is there anything crazy, scary, or depressing happening in the world today? Have you ever asked the question because of that, what in the world is God doing right now? Is he sleeping? Did he forget about us? We didn't get much pushback about Pastor Justin's sabbatical which was great. But if we're honest, many of us were like, three months? That's, he would do the same thing. Three months, that's a long time. But think about God. We maybe can say, 2,000 years, God? I mean, you said you so love the world, but it doesn't feel like you love it very much right now. Over 800 million image bearers worldwide are starving at some level. Up 150 million from just two, two years ago. Around 700 million still live in poverty. It's estimated that there's 25 million victims of sex trafficking in the world at any given time. 73 million babies' lives are ended through abortion every year. The pornography industry continues to grow. Homosexuality has been fully accepted by the culture. Transgender movement is gaining steam. Pedophilia is next. There's still rape, slavery, racism, theft, cancer, wars, torture, gangs, drug dealers, and anything else terrible that we can think of. Gas prices, I forgot. <laughs> that doesn't sound like God's kingdom has been coming as it is in heaven. It doesn't seem like he's making all things new. And all of that can cause us to doubt and lose trust in God's greatness, that he's in control, and God's goodness, that we don't need anything else. And potentially open us up to worldly philosophies that we shouldn't be believing, which can slowly but surely just chip away at our Christian worldview or prevent us from ever having one in the first place or cause it to be reduced down to only just believing that Jesus died for our sins, which means that we get to go to heaven one day. Well, we get to see a bigger picture of Christ today. We don't have to go through all of the repercussions of this lack of trust and this doubt as it gets passed on from generation to generation, but I will say this, if this doubt, this lack of hope or trust in God isn't checked, God is robbed of the glory that he deserves and we are missing out on the abundant life that Christ came to give us. So what can we do? How do we fight this? 
I want to steal something from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that he wrote in a book called Spiritual Depression and change it a little bit for our purposes today. The quote should be up on the screen. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are, talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing and crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. There's no doubt a helpfulness from Dr. Lloyd-Jones from what he's saying here, but here's how I would want to change it. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to the world instead of the word of God? Take those thoughts that came to you in the moment you opened up your social media feed or watched the news. They bring out the problems of the world, how bad it is and how much worse it's going to get. Who's talking? The world is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 110, as we're gonna see, was this. Instead of encouraging his people to focus on the circumstances of the world, the circumstances of life, he encourages his people to focus on the story of God. The world can be depressing and crushing mind to minds and hearts, so this man stands up and writes a song to be read and to be sung so that his people can take a break from listening to the world and start listening to the truths of God. That's what we get to see today. Amazing truths about the story of God, the story that we're all in right now. Truths that are good and beautiful and have the power to drown out any lies that the world might be telling us. Regardless of the circumstances of the world, regardless of how things seem to be going in the culture, for the Christian, the highest authority of truth is God's breathed out words that we call the Bible. So if we want to know reality, if we want to know what's really happening in the world, we first have to go to it and believe it and trust what it says. So today, again, it's my hope to take us to the word of God and hopefully give us hope as we look at Psalm 110. Remember or maybe see for the first time for some of us who God is, what he's like, what he's done, what he's doing right now, and what he's going to do in the end. All right, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Psalm 110 while I pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for what you've already done. We thank you for um, just already preaching the gospel to us in the songs that we, we sang and the liturgy that we heard and responded to. We pray that you would continue to do that work, Lord, that you would fill us up with yourself, that we would know your truths, and these truths would change us. Help us as we do that. We need that, Lord. We need your grace and your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so open them up to Psalm 110. There should be some Bibles in the, in the backs of the seats. If you don't have a Bible, I, I think it's probably gonna be best for you. If you're in a Bible today, it's gonna be up on the screen, but we are going to be in text, the text of Psalm 110, and we're gonna be in a few other texts today. So I hope you're hungry for God's word. Just to prepare us for what we're about to read in Psalm 110, Listen to some of the things that I learned in my preparation. Some theologians call our passage, Psalm 110, God's favorite Bible passage. This comes from it being the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So more New Testament writers and, new, and more times quoted this particular Psalm than any other um, part of God's word from the Old Testament. There are also numerous Christians, Christian doctrines articulated in this Psalm as well. A well-known commentator, Matthew Henry, says, some have called this psalm David's creed because almost all of the articles of Christian faith are found in it. Martin Luther says of this psalm, there is not a psalm like it in the whole of Scripture, and it ought to be very dear unto the church. So the Lord's given me an easy task today. 
just preached maybe one of God's favorite verses that has a uniqueness about it from all the rest of scripture and includes maybe much of what Christians believe in just seven verses. Phenomenal. As I prayed, we need God's grace and help this morning. We have to put on our thinking caps today and we have to focus, which if we remember, we're here to rest, right? So we should be able to focus in that rest. We have a lot to talk about and I wanna start with just walking through the Psalm together so we can hear and have a better idea of the basics of what this psalm is saying. So first, how's it laid out? Seven verses broken up into two divine oracles. I'll explain that. Then after each of the oracles, there's commentary on what was said in the oracles. We also have a short but important superscription. At the, at the beginning of the psalm, it says, a psalm of David. Now, while there's some controversy on that, some people didn't think, don't think David wrote it, Jesus didn't have any problem with it, as we'll look at in Matthew 22. A little later, he calls it a psalm written by David, so we're gonna go ahead and go with the risen Lord. Verse one says this, the Lord says to my Lord, so this is Yahweh speaking to Adonai. There were a few different names for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, or where we get the name Jehovah. There was Elohim, how God refers to himself in Genesis 1, the creator God. But Adonai was also a name given to God. But it really was a title for just an autocratic ruler, meaning someone who has absolute power. And again, David calls this person his Lord. Our English translations translate this phrase as the Lord, all capital letters, again, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, one capital letter, just the L, which is Adonai. Some of you may have a Bible that has the second Lord not capitalized. If that's the case, that's the Holy Spirit telling you that you should get a new Bible. <laughs> Just kidding. But it should have at least a note that's saying it could be translated as Lord or Adonai. This is the first of two oracles, as I mentioned. The second one we'll see in verse four. An oracle is a direct word from God typically given to a prophet. So we've seen this in, in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah. This one is given to David here, and here is what God says to Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Amazing words. This sitting here is not a posture, right? This isn't Adonai sitting right next to Yahweh. Commentator William Plummer says this sitting phrase here expresses quiet repose or a state of rest. It also denotes majesty and authority and power. So Adonai is being told to rest in his majesty, authority, and power. At God's right hand, specifically in the Old Testament, was an emblem of strength. It was an emblem of honor, as well as denoting a nearness to God. God was going to be with David's Lord as this was going to happen. It says, until or while Yahweh makes the enemies of God, the enemies of Adonai, Adonai's footstool. So we learn here that Adonai has enemies, but those enemies are in trouble because the great I am, Yahweh, is coming for them. And he's coming for them, he's going to come for them until they are completely subjugated, completely wiped out. Remember, while Adonai rests in majesty. Verse two, now starts David's commentary on Yahweh's oracle to Adonai. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This phrase sends forth could also be translated stretches out. Yahweh is taking the kingdom of Adonai represented here by this mighty scepter which was a symbol of authority again and power. Adonai's kingdom starts with Zion, but isn't going to remain there only. It will move out from there, and he's called to rule in the midst of his enemies. So he takes his kingdom to his enemies. As his kingdom is expanding, there will be enemies that reject his rule, but he's gonna rule anyway. The word here, for rule is radah, it comes with a sternness. It's not a kindly rule. It indicates a rule imposed on a people even if they resist. Verse three, 
Your people, that's the people of Adonai, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I'm sure we all completely understand that already, but let me try to explain it a little better. You may have a note after the word power that says that this could be also translated on the day you lead your forces. So as Adonai's kingdom is expanding and Yahweh is taking it to his enemies, the people of Adonai aren't just sitting back and watching, rather they're gonna join him. They will not resist joining him, they're willing. They will cheerfully join him. I heard a headmaster of a classical Christian school one time say that they expect their students to obey every day, right away, all the way, in a cheerful way. That's what I think of here. These people are willing to join Yahweh and Adonai as their kingdom goes out from Zion. These people are also going to be holy and they're also going to be numerous. That's the whole dew in the morning thing. It's a poetic imagery describing a lot of people. As much dew that can be seen on the ground when you wake up in the morning is how many people Adonai has in his army. Verse four, this is the second of the oracles from God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind is setting up the oracle just as the Lord says to my Lord was doing back in verse one. In addition to that, this phrase is also an oath. It's a promise that God is settled on. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to repent from what he settled on. What he settled on is Adonai being a priest. And not just any priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, some of us are probably familiar with that name. We don't know a ton about this guy, Melchizedek. He's this mysterious character that we meet back in Genesis 14. And here's what we learn about him. He's the king of Salem, which is a Canaanite city. and was probably the land that eventually became Jerusalem. And he's also the priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abram after Abram and his men won a significant battle and then receives tithes from Abram. All of that was to show us his superiority over Abram. After this scene in Genesis 14, we hear nothing more about Melchizedek until for some reason David brings him up in this psalm. Main thing to take from this for now is Adonai is not just a king who is ruling, he is also a priest but he's not a priest after the order of Aaron or what the Bible calls the Levitical priest. He is a priest of a different order, pointing to the fact that the ultimate welfare, protection, and happiness of God's people would need more than the Levitical priesthood, than just the Levitical priesthood and the functions that they carried out. Verse five. We now get more commentary on, but this seems to be more commentary on the first oracle rather than the second oracle. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is David speaking now to Yahweh, saying that Adonai is at the right hand like we learned already from verse one. And from this place, they're going to subdue, subdue all God's enemies, however mighty those enemies may be. Verse six, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Chilling words. As Adonai's kingdom is being stretched out, he will judge among the nations of the earth and many of the people of these nations will be slaughtered. Verse seven. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. As Adonai goes about his conquest, he will refresh himself with a drink and continue to go about in his march of victory. This seems to be imagery taken from a story of Samson found in the book of Judges where after a victory, Samson calls out to the Lord and asks for water and God provides. Its significance here is stating that Yahweh provides as Adonai conquers. Really just closing the cycle that the Psalm started with. All right. So everybody got it? Any questions? I think after my first few readings of this psalm, I had over 40 questions about it. So we probably have some, but I think we 
probably got a little bit of this, right? Maybe we understand kind of all of it, but there still seems something that's off. There still seems something that we're missing, something that would help it all make more sense. It definitely doesn't seem like we could apply this psalm to anybody that we know of from the Old Testament. Well, we probably don't need John Calvin's help here, but this is a quote from him that could be helpful. He says, beyond all controversy, this psalm is a very clear prediction of the divinity priesthood, victories, and triumph of the Messiah. That's the missing piece. This psalm is entirely messianic. It's not only pointing to the Messiah, who was the promised deliverer of the nation of Israel, like so many other psalms do, but specifically, it was promising the glory of what he was going to be and the bigness of what he was going to do. With the singing of this psalm, the Israelite people would have been given a picture of the future of their nation. So whether they sung it when a king was crowned, not knowing if that king was going to be good or bad, or before going out into battle, not knowing if they were going, that was going to be a battle that they were going to win or lose, or even at a time of oppression where they had already been defeated by some other nation, this psalm could give them hope. They didn't have to lose hope or trust in their God regardless of what their circumstances were. They could hope in the inspired words of God that David writes in this psalm. Their Messiah was coming one day. And here are just a few things about him that they could hold on to. Number one, he was greater than David. We know that because David calls him Lord. That's verse one. David was the first of the Davidic dynasty and the greatest of all Israelite kings, but David bows the knee to this Messiah. Number two, he was a king. That's verse two. This would not only have given them hope, but also reminded them that God stays true to his covenant promises. God made a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel verse seven, or chapter seven, and the last of what he says to David is this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Messiah being a king in the line of David would have deepened the Israelites' trust in their God. Number three, he would be a priest forever. That's verse four. Priest offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, interceded for the people, and gave benedictions or blessings over the people. They were mediators between God and man. The Israelites knew how important priests were to the covenant relationship that they had with God. So this Messiah, being one forever, again, would have given them hope for their nation's future. Number four, he was going to win. That's verses five through seven. Remember, the enemies of God and his people in the Old Testament typically showed up as other nations that would try to conquer them. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, all of these were dominating kingdoms who not only took over the Jews, but desired to rule the whole world. Well, this psalm says that the Messiah was going to be a conquering warrior who will be dominating over all the other kingdoms, over all the other enemies. Can we see how the hope that they could have as they looked at this psalm? The access to this psalm would have given these people hope. When they start to doubt the welfare of their people, when they start to look and see how relentless their enemies are at and coming after them, no matter who those enemies may be, they could turn to this psalm and regain their hope. I just want us to sit in that for a little bit. God's chosen people throughout their history didn't feel like they were winning all the time. They may not have thought that they had reason to rejoice all the time, to celebrate, to even praise God. There were times when they were in exile. There were times and even when, after they were removed from exile that the enemy still continued to come at them and attack them. Shoot, there was a time when God said, I'm done speaking to you for 400 years. But this Psalm could still bring them hope. Again, its purpose was to let God speak to them instead of their circumstances speaking to them. But hear this, 
their hope was heavy on waiting. And it was heavy on longing for. How much better is the hope that we have? If this psalm was able to give God's people hope by promising them something in the future, how much more hope should we have as God's people now since this psalm describes our past, present, and future? What do I mean? In order to fully get the beauty of this psalm and understand what I mean by it, describing our past, present, and future, we will need the help of the New Testament. Like I mentioned before, this psalm is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. I believe it's almost, there's almost 40 diff- or 30 different references of this psalm spread across the New Testament pages. I'm not going to go to all 30, but we're going to go to some of these so that we can get a clear picture of this psalm, hoping to show us five truths that we can hold on to to give us hope. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, Jesus is divine. Number three, he's our king. Number four, he's our high priest forever. And lastly, he's the priest king that wins. Let's start with the gospel of John chapter 20, verse 31. I'm not gonna go to it in my Bible, which I would love to, but I'm gonna try to save us some time from all of that turning. Gospel of John chapter 20. It says, but these, talking about the accounts of Jesus. So all of these things that were written about Jesus, what he did in his earthly ministry, all the miracles, everything he said, everything that Jesus taught. That's what what these means. John is saying these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Messiah. John is saying, we wrote all this stuff down so that you readers would know that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John, one of Jesus's disciples and closest followers, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, says that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews were expecting to come. And that by believing that, the people that believe that may have life in his name. It also means that if we look back at Psalm 10, we can replace Adonai with Jesus Christ. Look at this. The Lord says to Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, Jesus. That's past for us. That's already happened. Jesus has already come into this world. He's the Messiah who's the hope, not just for the Jews, but of the entire world. Next, let's go to Matthew 22. I've already mentioned this text and telling you that this is where Jesus says that David is the one that wrote the psalm. But we also see Jesus wanting his listeners to know something else about the Messiah and he points it out in this passage. So Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Again, the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit, that means David didn't write this by himself, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord. Then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. So what Jesus is revealing here is the Messiah is not who they think he is. You see, the Jews thought the expected Messiah was going to be a great king who was going to come from the line of David, restore the Davidic dynasty, which was never restored after the Babylonian exile. This they had right, but they thought that he was going to be just a man. A man who, like David, would be a great king and finally save them from their enemies and oppressors. With this question to the Pharisees, Jesus was poking holes in their understanding of Scripture and hinting at the fact that the Messiah had to be more than just a man. If the Messiah is only David's son, then there's no way that David would bow the knee to this man. This had to have meant that the Messiah was going to be more than David's son, and in order to be greater than David, the Messiah had to be another's son as well. In order to complete this point about the Messiah, let's turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter one, verses one through four. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David. How? According to the flesh. So that's how Jesus Messiah can be David's son. He's a human that has come from the line of David. Keep reading. And was declared to be the son of God in power. How? According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So why can Jesus be David's Lord as well as his son? Because by the spirit, he's also the son of God. He's both God and man, fully God and fully man. I know that's wild, but it's true. And we don't have time to explain it all today. But again, that's past, present, and future for us. He's fully God, fully man. Jesus is not only the Messiah, and he's not just another man. He's the son of God, which makes him the only one who could save the world. He's the Messiah, and he's divine. Next, we need to stay here and then look at another text to help us understand Psalm 110, verse 1, a little better. Jesus has never not been the Son of God, but there was a time when the attestation of this was made. In Romans here, it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in what? Power. What was Adonai doing in Psalm 110? Sitting in majesty and authority and in power. Where? At the right hand of Yahweh. And how did he get there? Paul tells us here in Romans, by the resurrection from the dead. That again is past. This means that he's already there. He's there right now. I think we miss that. Sometimes we think that Jesus is somewhere that he's not in control. Right now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father in total control of the whole universe. We know that because he's already went to the grave and risen from that grave. Now turn to Acts 2 to complete this. I actually do have to turn there because I didn't write it down. So Acts 2. I was going to start at verse 22, but let's try to save some time here. What happens at the beginning of this is this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, right? He's preaching. He's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And now the, the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God is manifesting on earth as he preaches. And he's telling these guys that, hey, you killed Jesus, but God didn't let him stay dead. He raised him up. And then he points to Psalm 16 here. And he, explain, he goes through Psalm 16. But then what he's going to do is he's going to say, you can't apply Psalm 16 to anyone in the Old Testament, you can't even apply him to David, has to be somebody else. So starting in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David's still in the grave. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Again, Jesus coming from the line of David. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Again, this was the, the, when they were speaking in different languages and everybody's like, these guys are drunk. And they're like, no, we're, we're drunk with the Spirit of God. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, back to Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here it is. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. One of the most significant pieces of this psalm that gave Israelites hope. David's Lord was going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh until Yahweh made his enemies his footstool, crowning David's Lord as the king of the world. Paul told us in Romans, Peter tells us in Acts here that that's been fulfilled in Jesus. That is why, along with Christians for over 1,500 years, we can profess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He descended into Hades, ascended into heaven, and what? Sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus is on the throne. 
Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. It's his kingdom that is expanding. It is he that is the one ruling in the midst of his enemies. That's past, present, and future for us. So he's the Messiah, he's divine, and he's our king. Next, we need to go to the book of Hebrews. I hope you guys like all this Bible. Most of the book of Hebrews is about Christ's how Christ fulfills and perfects what the Old Testament began and pointed toward. It shows us that Christ is greater than angels, shows us that Christ is greater than Moses, shows us that Christ is greater than Old Testament high priests. Which if you remember from our walk through the text, the Messiah was going to be greater than any other priest in Israel's history. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's referring to the old covenant. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? The writer of Hebrews goes back to Psalm 110 to tell us, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember how we said that sitting meant resting. Christ was resting because of the work of salvation was finished with his blood being shed on the cross. Before he could be exalted, he first had to suffer and that suffering was a single sacrifice that, offered up, that was offered up to God, making Jesus superior to the high priest of the Old Testament. But Hebrews also is where we learn more about Psalm 10 verse four. We get to more insight into Melchizedek and Christ's connection with him. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 2, tells us that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness and that he's the king of peace because Salem or Salem means peace. It goes on to say that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. This means that even though Jesus Messiah in Psalm 110 is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek, it's actually Melchizedek that is a type of Christ. The Son of God doesn't resemble him, he resembles the Son of God. He's the King of righteousness and peace because Christ is the true King of righteousness and true King of peace. He has no beginning and no end because the Son of God has no beginning and no end. Christ is the antitype of the Old Testament figure and Melchizedek shows up in the Old Testament primarily because a huge piece of what Christ was going to be for the world, which was a propitiation for our sins, the ultimate and final sacrifice could only happen if Christ was a different kind of priest than the priest who were after the order of Aaron. The sons of Levi were part of the Old Covenant and wouldn't suffice. Hebrews 7 tells us that the sons of Levi became priests only by heredity. The office was passed on from generation to generation through the line of Levi, but Jesus was not a son of Levi, and he also needed to be a greater priest than the sons of Levi anyway. So he needed to become a priest after a different order and through different means. Genetics wasn't going to work. The order was Melchizedek, a priest king who had no beginning and no end and the means we see in verse 16. It says that he became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Christ became a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek by suffering and dying and then defeating death by the power of the Holy Spirit and being exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Amazingly, David, a thousand years before this happened, said it was going to happen. But again, it's in the past for us. And look at what this means for the world according to the author of Hebrews. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, again referring to the old covenant. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Christ's death and resurrection meant a better hope for the world. And once again, where does the author of Hebrews go to prove his claim? 
Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This oath, he says, verse 22, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's the better hope. The new and better covenant. He tells us that it's a covenant that doesn't require new priest every time a priest dies, rather a covenant that only requires one priest who is a priest forever. All of that gives us this good news, verse 25. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, that's this priest king from Psalm 110 that David predicted, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Church, do we see the significance of that? I love that song, Before the Throne of God, but today singing it, after studying this, it was much more beautiful to me. No tongue could bid me thence depart. Why? Because we have a priest forever who's made one sacrifice, the only sacrifice that's necessary for our sins. And what happened to him after he did that, he defeated the grave and was risen up to be the king of the world. It's amazing. If Jesus, Messiah, is just a divine king, then we're all in trouble. We would all be one of his enemies that would be put under his feet we would all be corpses that would fill the nations like we've seen in Psalm 110. But church, he's not just a divine king. He's also our high priest forever. As Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, he's interceding for those he has saved. This includes prayers for us, but also includes a continual presentation before the Father of his once and for all sacrifice. This means our sins have been paid for. This means that we've been bought with a price and Christ makes that clear to the Father by continually being at his right hand. Again, he's there right now. Through this, we have final salvation that can never be taken from us. Jesus is the Messiah, he's divine, he's our king, and he's our priest forever. Lastly, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's what I've been trying to tell you guys. Again, in our past, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be all be made alive. This has hints of Psalm 10 verse 3. In order for these people in Christ's army to be willing to join him in his kingdom expanding, they first have to be regenerated. They first have to be born again. They have to be taken out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. That only happens if we're in Christ. But it's also looking ahead. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at, the, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that's his second coming. We want to belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That's future for us. This is Paul's exegesis of Psalm 110. One day Christ will deliver the kingdom that has been expanding like Psalm 110 tells us to the Father. But he won't do that until he destroys all of his enemies. For he must reign present until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Paul is refer- referencing Psalm 110, and once again, applying it to Jesus, Messiah, remember how he was going to do it. Psalm 110, verse three says, his people, Christians, followers of Christ, those who have been made alive in him will freely offer themselves, and it won't be a select few super Christians. It will be a multitude of people participating in this battle, which brings up an important principle about the kingdom of God that we have to understand. The authority of Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, but the power manifests here on the earth through the spirit. That's what we read about in Acts 2. The authority of Christ was in heaven. He's the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, but the power of the spirit manifests on earth through healing and through witnessing and through the preaching of God's word, all of the things that the apostles and the early Christians were doing. That's how it still works. 
What does Christ tell us in the Great Commission? He says that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go disciple the nations. Therefore, go and make disciples. The authority of Christ is in heaven, but the power of the Holy Spirit manifests and works down here. What's that mean? I think it speaks to what's been happening for 2,000 years, even though we maybe have been blind to it and helps us to understand how Christ's kingdom is going to continue to expand. It's going to expand by the power of the Holy Spirit working through willing saints of Christ Jesus. The preaching of the gospel, the work of the ministry, the sharing of our faith, the loving of our neighbors, being fruitful and multiplying, raising up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, being salt and light of the world, living in Christian community and being on the mission of God, discipling the nations. That's how it's going to happen. Have we ever thought about that? How we live matters. We aren't just down here waiting for Christ to finally slaughter his enemies. Man, I really just wish Jesus would get ahead and do this whole winning thing. That's not how we are. That's not how we're supposed to be. Right now, he's using the gospel message and gospel people who have been changed by that message to gain gospel victory. Are we those people? Are we those people? Will we go to our graves having been faithful participants in this fight? Knowing that even that part, even the grave won't have ultimate victory over us. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You think an enemy of God is going to outlast him? Not even death is going to outlast him. Everything God hates, he's putting under his feet. As we speak, he's in the process of doing that right now. Can that not give us hope in the times that we are in? Poverty, God's coming. Starvation, God's coming. Abortion, God's coming. Cancer, God's coming. Corrupt government, God's coming. Believe that this morning, Christian. Christ is the divine, conquering priest king who will be victorious. Our trust should be nowhere else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, and we thank you for what you're doing right now, Lord. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, that we would be able to process what we just said, Lord, that we would be able to be encouraged by it, we would be challenged by it, and we would be comforted by it, knowing that you are on your throne right now. You are on your throne right now, ruling in the midst of your enemies. Lord, because when we think about it, we have a lot of enemies out there, Lord. We have enemies in the culture, but we also have enemies that come out through us, Lord. We also have sin in our own lives. We also go after idols and worship other things other than you. We can know and trust and hope that you're going to come after those enemies as well, and you're going to defeat them. So we thank you for that, Lord. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.